Primary Care Knowledge Boost Podcast 6 Palpitations. Hello and welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. I'm Dr. Sarah McDermott. And I'm Dr. Lisa Adams. And today we're going to be talking to consultant cardiologist Dr. Karthik about palpitations. Uh, so hello and welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Um, today we have Dr. Karthik back with us to talk about palpitations. Um, it's nice to see you again, Dr. Karthik. Um, would you mind introducing yourself again for everyone? Thank you once again. I'm Dr. Karthik and I'm one of the cardiology consultants working at uh, Wigan Infirmary and within Shaw Hospital, Manchester. Perhaps you can start with defining what palpitations actually are. Okay, um, I'm not going to give you the Oxford textbook of medicine definition of palpitations, but palpitations could mean anything, right from someone just being aware of the heartbeat to someone actually having fast, forceful um, beating of the heart, which they are aware about. And palpitations, again, for some patients could mean a forceful sensation in the chest, like they describe it as their heart jumping out, and some for some it's it's just ringing in the ears, a pulse style ringing in the ears, so... It's it's a very variable uh, presentation and sim- in terms of symptoms for palpitations. Right. Okay. So if we've got someone that comes in and, and says to us, "Oh, um, I've got palpitations, um, doctor," um, what sort of questions and features are important for us to ask about? So palpitations. So the first thing is, it's best to ask if if they're just aware of the heartbeat or do they actually feel the heart beating fast? Mm-hmm. And then the patients can come up and say, "Oh, my heart isn't beating fast, but I can feel that it's forceful, and I can feel it, my heart going." Uh, boom 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 and some patients tend to have a fast heartbeat and where it's useful to ask them whether it's fast and regular fast and irregular I even tap on the table and ask them uh, if it's regular or visit if it's irregular and all over the place yeah um, and it helps to determine that and it, with palpitations obviously we ask for associated symptoms including dizziness lightheadedness breathlessness chest tightness chest pains and it's important to ask them what brings the palpitations on, how long do they last for, what makes them better, yeah. and if there is any sort of regular feature in terms of a precipitating cause, you know, binge drinking every Friday and palpitation on Saturday morning, yeah. and also relation to food intake, to physical activity, exercise, um, and also in, in women if it's around their menstrual cycles and stuff like that. Because ah, okay, so, yes. that could be again hormonal changes, uh, changes causing tachycardia and palpitations. What examination should we be carrying out after the first appointment of seeing somebody? So once you have your history about the palpitations, uh, again, it's important to ask about family history, family history of any uh, tachycardia, tachyarrhythmias, uh, parents having ablation procedures when they were young, oh, yeah. um, parents having pacemaker procedures because of following ablations, and also history of sudden cardiac death in the young. Again, if there's a family history of, let's say, long QT syndromes and palpitations related to cardiac conduction disturbances mm-hmm. physical examination the usual make sure they are clinically euthyroid examine nice. uh, their thyroid status mm-hmm. check their pulse and blood pressure a 12 dcg is, is a good start yep. to look for simple things like sinus rhythm or an atrial tachycardia of any sort af or flutter uh, look for qt intervals and an echocardiogram would also be useful to look for any structural heart disease. If somebody has had congenital heart disease, well, you'll be aware of it anyway, but because they would have been picked up and investigated for that. Yeah. And again, look for valvular heart disease, atrial, uh, sorry, aortic stenosis, aortic regurgitation, mitral stenosis, quite commonly. Yeah. And then you go on to request things like a twenty-four hour halter monitor and um, prolonged recording as required. Okay. 
fabulous. And with that first um, history and examination, would there be any signs or symptoms that be worrying in these patients? Um, if these patients are getting a significant amount of palpitations, fast heart rates, uh, that is making them feel dizzy, lightheaded, lose consciousness, syncope, yeah. that would be worrying. Or if they have symptoms that are associated with significant amount of chest pain, especially in older patients where tachycardia and palpitations can can have an effect on the uh, myocardial demand supply for oxygen and bl- uh, nutrition. Yeah. In which case, it could be an angina symptom because of the increased heart rate. So it's important oh, yes. to rule that out. So these are some of the features which would be worth looking for. Okay, lovely. And what are just generally the first line investigations that you go about doing? I would have thought by the time the reach has, I mean, they would have had routine blood investigations uh, like hemoglobin uh, to rule out anemia, thyroid yeah. function tests yeah. to assess for um, hyperthyroidism. And again, depending upon their physical examination, look for things like uh, raised cortisol levels in Cushing's. And, and if you're worried about things like phaochromocytoma, obviously direct investigations towards looking for phaochromocytoma in these patients. If they have symptoms like flushing uh, with palpitations, that is again useful. Um, so these investigations should be direct depending upon the clinical presentation. So just as an aside here, we looked into tests looking for pheochromocytoma. Uh, it's always an interesting one that perhaps in primary care we don't always come across very much, um, but we just had a look about the diagnostic tests available. Yep, so the BMJ best practice have produced some guidance on the area, um, which was last reviewed in May 2019. Um, And they state that if the patient has a low pretest probability for the condition, then the best test for us to do is the 24-hour urine collection of catecholamines. They suggest that the blood test for serum-free metanephrines and normetanephrines would be appropriate if your clinical suspicion is high. I've got a link to the, um, the best practice article, so we'll also include that in the episode description for anyone to have a read if they're interested. Brilliant. And now back to the podcast. Um, and if everything, um, say, comes back on all of those first-line investigations, um, where would we go next? Um, particularly, I guess, if the person's not had any event or anything with the monitor on. So when, when they have not had an event while wearing the monitor on, and if everything is normal and they still have persistent palpitations, then the next step would be to probably go for prolonged monitoring. Yeah. Um, as I said, 72-hour, well, 48-hour tape, 72-hour tape, or even a two-week event recorder. And finally, considering an implantable loop recorder, if the symptoms are debilitating enough for the patients that they are unable to carry on with the daily activities mm-hmm. or have associated symptoms like loss of consciousness, syncope with the palpitations. Um, I remember um, in my ST3 practice, um, one of the patients went and bought um, something that they could put their thumb on um, to record their heart and one of those kind of home things. <laughs> Do you recommend anything like that? You get that? a lot of uh, commercial gadgets nowadays that will yeah. look at your heart rate and rhythm. And in fact, there's one that you stick onto your phone and which will de- detect uh, or which is meant to detect um, abnormal heart rhythms, in, yeah. including atrial fibrillation and flutter. Yeah. And uh, yeah, why not? And nowadays we have had a lot of referrals and increase in referrals because patients are picking up fast heart rates on their Fitbits yes. and the Apple Watches. So, yeah. 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 I had recently a man in with AF detected from his Fitbit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, lovely. Um, so what are the significant findings on a 24-hour ECG? So uh, the significant findings on a 24-hour ECG would be a very high burden of atrial or ventricular ectopics. When I say high burden, maybe over 10% or mm-hmm. uh, 15%. But again, mind you, if somebody's got only 1% or 2%, but then they are so aware of those ectopics, that's mm-hmm. significant for that particular patient. Yeah. And then there are also situations where you tend to come across uh, runs of 
supraventricular tachycardia, narrow complex tachycardia, including atrial flutter, fibrillation, or just plain SVT, and um, even ventricular tachyarrhythmias. Um, so that would be the worrying things we'd be looking for, lovely. Yeah. Um, we sometimes get um, the, the ECG reports back and we're not too sure what we need to do with them. Um, and one option is that we can use the, the advice and guidance service to get um, some sure. opinions. Um, but we just wondered if you'd mind talking us through a few of the different findings we can sometimes pick up um, and the significance of them um, sure. on a 24-hour ECG. If we maybe start with T-wave inversion. Um, T-wave inversions are very non-specific, And if yeah. patients don't have any symptoms, I wouldn't really act upon just mere T-wave inversions. Again, T-wave inversions can occur in a variety of situations, uh, including young patients. Um, again, the, it, it could be related to repolarization changes as well mm-hmm. in the ventricle. And also mm-hmm. T-wave inversions can also occur in patients with left ventricular hypertrophy because of hypertension and strain. Yeah. So T-wave inversions are pretty non-specific, I must say. Mm-hmm. Um, atrial and ventricular ectopics, again, as I say, we, are all, we all get ectopic beats and... Um, it all depends on the relative frequency of the ectopic beats, the, the burden of ectopic beats in relation to normal heartbeats, mm. and whether they are forceful enough to cause significant symptoms in patients. Yeah, okay, so that's more related to symptoms and correlating if it's Correct. the time the patients are feeling but it. But then mind you, if somebody's got significant ventricular ectopic beats, for example, if 25 to 30% of the total heart rate and rhythm over 24 hours is made up of ectopics, that has uh, intermediate long-term sequelae by causing left ventricular dysfunction because of the um, burden of ectopics and these patients oh. develop what we call tachycardia related cardiomyopathy right. and they will need treatment okay. and by treating them with rate limiting drugs including beta blockers uh, some of the uh, cardiomyopathy changes can be reversed somewhat okay, yeah. yeah and it's important to hence diagnose and treat these patients appropriately yeah okay. so that's for people with um, a large burden of ectopics correct for people with sinus tachycardia, is that ever particularly important? I don't think so. No, I don't think yeah. I've come across any patient with sinus tachycardia who's come to any significant harm. Yeah. But again, um, it's important to try and figure out the cause for the sinus tachycardia, yeah. whether it's just anxiety or whether it's uh, related to um, medications, related to alcohol intake, things like that, and um, addressing the underlying cause for the sinus tachycardia. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times we get referred pregnant women with sinus tachycardia and, and, and with pregnancy, your heart rate does go up and yes. it's it's a normal uh, physiological change. But again, it depends on how fast the heart is and whether they're going into the supraventricular tachycardia territory or if they're developing atrial flutter or fibrillation, yeah. which will need again treating. Um, and I guess with the tachycardias, we've got the bradycardias as well. Um, you mentioned um, before to us that it depends on how the patient feels with the bradycardias because some people can tolerate it better than others. Yes. Is that is, is that the most thing that we need to look for with the bradycardias? Bradycardia is important because, again, if there is significant bradycardia, including um, higher AV block or sinus pauses, um, then these, there is an indication to pace these patients. Some patients tend to have ventricular tachycardia triggered by bradycardia. Ah. Because of the slow heart rate, they tend to develop uh, torsades or even VT, mm-hmm. um, and hence it's important to look at the t- bradycardia and they might need pacing to suppress or treat the bradycardia and prevent them from going into ventricular tachyarrhythmias. Mm-hmm. And that's where bradycardia is important. Yeah, so for QT changes, is that something that you find particularly important on ECGs? QT changes are, again, quite non-specific, and um, they would probably be relevant only if patients have symptoms associated with them, including, say, chest pains when they're exerting themselves, walking, climbing stairs, 
and you find associated QT changes. And again, QT interval changes are important in patients who are on antipsychotic medications and drugs that can prolong QT intervals. Yeah. That again makes them susceptible to ventricular arrhythmias and potentially even life-threatening ones at times. Yeah, that's mm. right. And the other thing that I sometimes find that um, is written in the report is per R wave progression. Um, I'm just wondering about the significance of that. So poor R wave progression is mostly related to uh, previous myocardial damage, especially the anterior wall of the myocardium. Uh, when somebody had a previous MI and they developed Q waves and the transition of the R wave from V1 through V6. Mm-hmm. Again, it's a very non-specific finding uh, in an ECG alone, and it, it has got to be looked at in context of the patient. Uh, if they have symptoms of heart failure, if they've had previous myocardial infarction, and that that's a, a sign of a myocardial damage somewhat. And if they've never had a reported myocardial infarction, um, would we be worried about it, thinking, oh, has this happened in the past? Not if the patient is not symptomatic. I mean, if you have good reason to believe that this patient is developing symptoms of heart failure, um, or LV dysfunction, then yes, it will need investigating. Uh, but again, if it's a middle-aged gentleman, for example, with a raised body mass index with hypertension, diabetes, and other sort of uh, cardiovascular risk factors, yeah. again, it's important to look at the poor R wave progression and, and consider whether this patient has had an event without any chest pain symptoms before. Yeah. Um, and a code would be useful there perhaps to look for any um, left ventricular dysfunction or wall motion abnormalities on the uh, uh, myocardium. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And in terms of generally going back to the palpitations, is there anyone that we should be urgently referring to outpatient clinic, um, depending on what we've said or, um, or what they've said, sorry, or um, examination findings or ECG findings? Um, if patients are getting significant um, palpitations that is affecting the daily activities uh, and with associated symptoms or features such as presyncope or syncope, breathlessness, then yes, they, they, they will need to be referred and seen in um, secondary or tertiary care. And the ones who have had features where they have definitely lost consciousness um, mm-hmm. will need to be admitted to the hospital if they're hemodynamically unstable, mm. where they drop their blood pressure or if they've got ongoing angina type of chest pain. Yeah. So those patients will need to be admitted to hospital. And again, if you have reason to believe that the palpitations is, are related to simple things like a really bad chest infection where they will need investigating or any form of sepsis yes. uh, will need will need to be admitted to hospital. Patients who have had issues with the endocrine problems such as thyrotoxicosis or thyroid storm, they will need mm-hmm. to be investigated and admitted to hospital. So so not everybody will have a primary cardiac cause. So we'll have to look for other causes, non-cardiac causes that could also precipitate and cause palpitations. Yes. Profound anemia because of a GI bleed or unknown bleeding. Oh, yeah. Again, they can present with palpitations, so it's important to um, rule these other features out. Yeah, that, that's really important. Yeah. So I was um, just going to ask about the use of beta blockers um, in these patients. Is there anyone that um, we could start on beta blockers, say the, the small number of um, ectopics, um, and not need to refer? Um, we do come across a lot of uh, primary care colleagues who commence patients on beta blockers, such as propranolol in patients. And it's, it's not harmful to trial a small dose of propranolol or um, even bisoprolol in these patients but many a time what we come across is these patients do not seem to tolerate beta blockers and if they do tolerate they still have the palpitations which again suggests that they could probably stop the beta blocker and then um, be trained to live with their palpitations if they're not serious yeah. enough out of affecting the daily activities yeah. but no there's, there's definitely no uh, reason why you shouldn't try a beta blocker if there is a significant vectopic burden and or patients have significant symptoms that is debilitating them. Okay, lovely. Thank you. 
Um, and so should we talk about AF? Well, um, sure, yeah. <laughs> with palpitations. So if we've picked up someone in clinic, in GP, with an irregularly irregular heartbeat, what sort of things would be worrying to us on that same day? Um, obviously, you'll check the blood pressure, make sure they're not uh, unstable, uh, uh, hypotensive, number one. Number two, you want to make sure their heart rate is not too fast. So a 12 EDCG is always useful to com- uh, to confirm a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation because yeah. merely checking a pulse is not totally reliable. It could be an irregular pulse because of ectopics. It could be an irregular pulse um, because of atrial fibrillation. So it's important yeah. to do a 12 EDCG. Now, worrying symptoms, yes, if they have ongoing symptoms of chest pain, uh, breathlessness if they have if they show signs of heart failure it's important and obviously if they've had um, symptoms suggestive of a stroke or systemic embolic event yes um, it'll be useful uh, like uh, like a transient ischemic attack or any lower limb or upper limb ischemia it's mm-hmm. important atrial fibrillation as you know is the commonest rhythm abnormality in our clinical practice mm-hmm. and uh, more common in patients in their sixth decade of life onwards essentially mm-hmm. and it's important to diagnose atrial fibrillation promptly and treat it with either a rate control or a rhythm control strategy as the case may be mm-hmm. and also it's important to remember that patients will need further workup to assess the risk for clots and to treat them appropriately for that okay can you talk us through the general management approach in terms of from general practice starting them on some of these medications and considering the, the clotting yeah. risk so in in stable asymptomatic patients and if they usually older patients in the 60s and 70s and 80s yeah if the heart rate is somewhat fast when it's somewhat past 80 90 100 plus uh-huh. you might want to start them on a beta blocker as a first line for rate control mm-hmm. if they cannot have a beta blocker then the next step or next line of drugs would be a calcium channel blocker such as diltiazem but again it's important to make sure that the left ventricular function is normal because if they have lv dysfunction it's not as advisable to consider uh, diltiazem or um as they can be negatively inotropic ah uh, yes that's right Number one. Number two, a baseline echo would be useful to assess left ventricular function, to assess the atrial sizes, as well as look for any valvular heart disease. Now, in terms of whether these patients should have rate control or rhythm control strategy, again, it depends on symptoms mainly. If you have a young guy or a lady with atrial fibrillation where they have a structurally normal heart otherwise, then we tend to think about rhythm control strategy for these patients as a first line. So you would still start them on things like beta blockers to control the heart rate. Uh-huh. You would want to anticoagulate them and then refer them for cardioversion in six weeks' time. Right. But all the patients where you're going to accept AF as the baseline rhythm, mm-hmm. then you can leave them on rate control medications and anticoagulate them as per the chats 2 vas score and the HAS-BLED score. So just as an aside, um, we just wanted to elaborate on the scoring systems here because it's a really in- important point. Uh, the risks and benefits of people with atrial fibrillation and considering anticoagulation can be weighed up using the CHADVASC scoring system and the HASBLED scoring. So NICE clinical knowledge summaries currently have recommended offering anticoagulation treatment for all people with a CHADVASC score of over two. Um, but also considering anticoagulating men with a CHADVAS score of one after taking into account the person's risk of bleeding using the HASBLED scoring tool. And also remembering um, to think about the contraindications for um, both warfarin and a NOAC. Um, there's really good information on NICKS um, about the contraindications and the monitoring that are required for all of those, as well as the risks and downsides and side effects. Um, so if you have a read of that um, and the BNF, you'll be fully informed to have discussions with patients about anticoagulation. Lovely. And now back to the podcast. 
Um, and I think there is a bit of a, a, a split in terms of managing AF in general practice. Um, some people are very happy to manage it themselves and some people refer everybody through. Um, do you have any advice for us about that? So atrial fibrillation is a medical problem. That's what we all keep saying. And it can be managed by general practitioners, by physicians. And the only patients that really need to be referred across to secondary or tertiary care is where the patients are completely unstable and cannot tolerate atrial fibrillation and might perhaps benefit from a rhythm control strategy as well as maybe an ablation yeah. procedure to rev- restore sinus rhythm in these patients. So rate control, anticoagulation, echocardiography are the three sort of basic things that can be done after you have confirmed AF on an ECG. Lovely. And can you talk us through a little bit about some of the considerations when we're starting somebody on a NOAC or or warfarin? Yeah. So first of all, in terms of anticoagulating patients, uh, a lot of patients are deprived of oral anticoagulation due to a perceived risk of harm due to falls and bleeding rather than the actual risk. Mm -hmm. And if if you do ask patients, again, it's a very individual thing and some patients might prefer to have a bleed uh, rather than have a debilitating stroke for the rest of the life. And yeah. so it's important to have the discussion with the patients about oral anticoagulation. The non-warfarin oral anticoagulants or the direct-acting oral anticoagulants um, are the new kids on the block, yeah. which have been shown to be non-inferior to warfarin mm-hmm. and benefit patients. And they do take away the need for regular INR monitoring, which warfarin uh, has had yeah. for yeah. years. So... Um, Provided patients have non-valvular atrial fibrillation, i.e. they don't have significant mitral valve disease or a prosthetic valve, then they can be considered for a NOAC. Okay, lovely. And would that be your first line now? Correct, yes. Lovely. And is there any difference between the NOACs um, or um, any evidence to show that one is better than the other? Uh, Dabigatrin 150 milligrams BD is the only drug that has been shown to be superior to warfarin, but otherwise Uh they're all pretty much the same in my opinion. And again, they do have a lot of studies comparing uh, these with warfarin in patients with renal failure, with diabetes. Um, but, I mean, they're all equally good, I think. Um, from what I remember, the risk is, is it gastric bleeding with the direct? Yes, gastric bleeds more than intracranial bleeds, which was the, with warfarin. Yes, lovely. Yeah. thank you. Um, and you've mentioned about doing an echo in people, and, and you would suggest doing one in everyone that we pick up um, with AF. Um, yes, I mean, but, but then mind you, if you have a bedbound 95-year-old patient with atrial fibrillation, you might just want to leave him alone because yeah. in that situation, an, a, uh, an echo might not change your overall management. You're just going to aim for rate control. Yep. And if it's safe to give anticoagulation, you would anticoagulate the patient. So. Yeah, okay, fantastic. And um, in my, myself, whenever I've done it, I've not really delayed starting the anticoagulant whilst waiting for the echo. Um, would that be appropriate? It makes sense. In fact, just last week, we had uh, in our audit meeting a presentation on uh, atrial fibrillation clinic that's run in Platbridge by a couple of my colleagues. Mm-hmm. And a very, very, very small number of patients were actually commenced on oral anticoagulation pro- at the time of referral to the anticoagulation clinic. And there was a, a good seven-week delay before they could go on to oral anticoagulation from the day of first diagnosis at the in the at the primary care level yeah. so i would encourage patients to be anticoagulated provided there's no contraindication for anticoagulation yeah. and making sure the patients are aware of commencing anticoagulation and a sensible discussion has been done and it's documented in your primary care notes as well yeah um, and i guess if we've listened to the heart we've not heard a murmur we can be fairly 
sure. happy that there's no valvular disease. Sure. And mind you, if, if you do find valvular heart uh, disease later on in echo, we can always switch them to warfarin. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's good to know. Probably the safer option of the two. Yeah. yeah. Making yeah. sure they don't have a stroke in the meantime. Yeah. Um, so thank you very much for talking to us today, Dr. Karthik. Um, we really appreciate it. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add or want listeners to take away from this session? It's been a pleasure talking to you. And you. Um, uh, I hope uh, my talks have been useful to colleagues in primary care. And uh, I would encourage them to discuss cardiovascular conditions with us on the advice and guidance. And yes. we're more than happy to offer any support. Yeah, that's fantastic. And like we said before, we've always had really good response from the advice and guidance cardiology um, questions. So, um, yeah, we encourage everybody out yeah. there to, to use it if, you, if you've got a question. Thank you. All right, brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you so much to Dr. Karthik for that summary of palpitations. Uh, yeah, it was really excellent um, going through all of that again, um, Sarah. Mm. I particularly um, enjoyed going through each of the individual um, ECG findings um, mm. and being told exactly what's relevant and what I need to act on. That was really useful. Yeah, that was really good. Um, it was nice as well to to hear that in general practice, we can be managing quite a lot of AF patients and that, that sort of bolstered my confidence a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the really important thing that I got out of that as well was just thinking about starting anticoagulants quite quickly for patients who have no contraindications mm-hmm. uh, with a new diagnosis of AF. And as long as they don't have a murmur, we don't have to wait for the echo to make sure it's definitely not valvular AF before starting anticoagulants. Yeah, I agree. That was really useful to hear. Um, so if anyone wants to get in contact with us um, give us a bit of feedback um, then you can contact us by email at primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com um, you can also find us on Twitter um, you can tweet at us or um, DM us at PCKB Podcast. and we've also got a survey um, that's got some more specific questions if you want to give us that feedback um, and the link will be in the description of the episode um, for everybody to, um, to access Thank you for listening till next time on Primary Care Knowledge Boost Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Wigan in 2019. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the show notes for full details and any links we've mentioned in the episode.